If you have your Bible this morning, uh, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 today with me. Uh, this is our third week and a four-week series that we are going through in this letter of 2 Timothy uh, that we have called Fan into Flame. And we get this t- uh, title for the series from the uh, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 of this letter to Timothy, where Paul says to him, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. If you were here with us that first week, you'll remember that uh, this was an encouragement to Timothy and a challenge to Timothy, looking back to the moment of his ordination, when he was set aside for ministry, and Paul and the elders of the church laid hands on him, and this call really to fan into flame this gift is, is not just a call for Timothy, but a call for each of us, for all of us, to use the gifts that God has given, given us uh, to accomplish his kingdom purposes and to see his kingdom grow through the giftings that we have in him. But really the unique thing about this letter, and the reason that I wanted to study it these last four weeks of my ministry here, is that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, uh, whom he calls his dear son in the faith, with some Uh, final encouragements or challenges and instructions uh, as Paul writing this letter is imprisoned in Rome uh, and likely going to, he knows, face his death. He is awaiting trial uh, that he knows will likely end in his execution. And really the thrust through this this book has been looking at these uh, kind of final words, that if you had a moment, uh, if you had the ability and, and timing to to pen your final words, to, to say you know, how you would wrap up your life maybe to, to a loved one, uh, what would you say? And, and Paul really uses this letter, I think, uh, to, to impart to Timothy what he feels is of utmost, important, of utmost importance when it comes to ministry and really the Christian life as a whole. Uh, Paul is writing these words uh, knowing, or he's not knowing, but we know that these are the last words of Paul that we have in the New Testament. And so with these being his final words, I can't help but think that he writes to Timothy specific things that he wants him to know and, and us to remember as well. Really in chapter 3 this morning we, as we get to it, um, it's kind of a continuation of last week as Paul addressed uh, certain false teachers in Timothy's midst. These men who uh, were not standing firm in the truth but rather distorting it. And as a result, he encourages Timothy to stand firm where they are not. And he kind of continues that thought in chapter 3 this morning while giving us uh, some instructions on how to best stand for truth. But I know that following uh, instructions can be challenging, especially on a baby recognition Sunday. It makes me reflect back on my time as a father, and sometimes, you know, instructions to your kids uh, don't always, you know, go through. They're, They're hard to follow sometimes. I actually brought along some examples of some people who uh, maybe technically followed instructions, but really kind of missed the point uh, of the instructions. So you'll see uh, first this sign, uh, no bicycle parking, oh, which technically it's not a bicycle, so they, they stand legal in their attempt to park there. Uh, the second one, I like this one a lot. Uh, I don't think that's what they meant by drive through pharmacy. Uh, third, you, you can't go wrong with a, a good cake fail. Uh, thanks for a great year in purple. I'm pretty sure they meant to do the letters in purple, not include the words uh, in purple. And, and lastly, you know, kids can make the best legalists find the difference between eight and six. Eight is all curly, six is not. Uh, <laughs> some of you uh, as teachers can certainly reflect on those kinds of answers. But sometimes you, know, you follow the instructions, but you still miss out on the point behind the instruction. And so this morning, Paul wants to make sure that we understand our instructions. 
But more importantly, he wants us to not necessarily merely follow the instructions, uh, but also uh, find out what these instructions are about, not end up missing the point. In fact, really what he's doing in 2 Timothy chapter 3 today is giving instructions about our instructions, which is, I know is a weird phrase, but that will make more sense in a few minutes. And so let's jump right in, uh, verse 1 this morning. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. I kind of just have to press pause there. I know I said we're going to jump right in. It's more kind of like sticking a toe uh, in for a second. But when we hear last days in the Bible, we often think of, you know, end times predictions or doomsday prophecies. But biblically, last days or last times or end times are are much less sensational, much less fantastical. Uh, Biblically speaking, when you see the phrase last days, what that means is the moment following Jesus' resurrection up until when he comes again. All of that time, those couple of thousands of years and however long he tarries until he returns, all of that, biblically, are considered the last days. We see this in Acts chapter 2 as uh, the day of Pentecost. After Jesus' death, Peter and the apostles are there and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're gifted with this gift of speaking in tongues or speaking in other languages not known to them so that people would hear the gospel in their own languages. There's this diverse crowd uh, that the disciples speak in these languages that they will understand uh, in their own, uh, own tongue, own dialect, own language. And so there are many people confused about what's happening here. And so Peter uh, stands up before them. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. He says, these languages are not a result of alcohol. It's only nine in the morning. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now, Peter here is not saying, you know, Jesus will be back next week, y'all. You know, get ready, he's coming. No, he's saying now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit is available to us in new and powerful ways. Last days for him is saying is in this period following Jesus' death, we have been equipped in certain ways. And until he comes again, we will continue to be empowered by his spirit. In the same way as Paul writes to Timothy, he says there will be terrible times in the last days. And he's not saying, you know, that someday, thousands of years in the future, things are going to get really bad. He's saying, hey, as you continue to stand firm in your testimony about Jesus' death and resurrection, you're going to see people who oppose you and and seek only to promote their own interests. And so that understanding, we kind of unpause and and look at verse 2. It says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have, have nothing to do, he says to Timothy, with such people. Now we could take this list, and I think the temptation is often when you find lists like this in Scripture, uh, to unpack every single uh, word, every single sin or vice, but really that's not necessary. Of these 18 things that Paul lists as sins or vices that we will encounter and our stand for the truth, really this entire list can be summed up by the bookends. He says first that people will be lovers of themselves, and lastly that they will not be lovers of God. And any time that, you you know, that people love themselves over their love for God, sins like this, attitudes and behaviors like this will be the result. 
And so I think as Paul you know, writes these things to us and says these things are what you're going to experience as you stand up for Jesus, uh, he, he's telling us that these will be problems that we face. These will be obstacles to the gospel of penetrating people's stone hearts uh, of sin and vice for the gospel, for the truth of Jesus. He says when people are interested only in themselves, it leads to this road of sin and despair. And so I think he's kind of prompting us to wonder, what is the solution to these terrible times? As I thought about, as I, as I thought about that this week, uh, I thought about a, a TV show uh, that Chandler likes to watch. We try not to let him watch a ton of TV, but one of the shows that he likes is called Super Why. And it's kind of a, an educational reading show, which is, I think is why his mom is, is okay with it. You know, it's, it's practically reading. You know, it's, it's right on the same lines uh, in a little bit. Uh, but as they come to this show... Uh, the, the thrust behind it is that one of the characters always has an issue that they're facing. And, and so they come and, and Super Y, they, they tell him, you know, I can't tie my shoes or, or I don't want to eat my vegetables. And Super Y and the Super Readers announce, you know, that's a super big problem. And I always think, man, if you think that's a big problem, buckle up, kids. It's about to get a whole lot worse. But I mean, that's, I digress from the point. But really, I said, this is the, the reason this is a reading show is, is because to solve they're big problems. They're super big problems. They always look uh, to a book. They look to a, a character, you know, Humpty Dumpty or Cinderella, and, you know, see that they had a challenge as well and see how they face that issue. And so I think as, as they say this, you know, to, to announce this problem and find it, they say, you know, let's look in a book. And really, you know, Paul is not super wide, but I think he's kind of echoing the same sentiment. He says, you look at all of the sins that will infect the human heart when God is not the first and foremost. And you see, that's a super big problem. And he offers the solution of not let's look in a book, but let's look to the book. The, the solution to the super big problems that Paul will enumerate for us is the Bible. Paul gives us this laundry list throughout this chapter of all of the difficulties that we will face as we take a, take a stand for Christ. We're going to deal with, first he says, you know, people who resist the truth. This, this whole list of sinful behaviors and attitudes of people who would rather pursue their own interests than things of God. He says, secondly, just a little bit later in this chapter, that we will deal with false teachers who are oppressive. Now, we saw this last week with those two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, as they distorted the truth of God's word to deal and appeal to cultural sensitivities. He goes on in verse 8 to talk of those who oppress and says, you know, teachers who oppose the truth, they are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Third, he says, we are going to deal with hardship and persecution. Verse 10, he lists some of his own experiences. He says, you, however, talking to Timothy, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says to Timothy, you know of, of what I experienced. And Timothy would have had knowledge beyond just the second hand. Timothy was from this town uh, that Paul speaks about of Lystra. Timothy was, a, a, a hometown was this place that Paul walked in and began preaching and an angry lynch mob showed up and dragged him out of the city and stoned him nearly to death only for him to get back up and go back into the city. Timothy would have seen Paul's sufferings firsthand. 
And what's perhaps more alarming is that Paul says that it's likely that we will face the same. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Paul lists all of these problems, these super big problems, resistance to the truth, false teachers who mislead and oppress people, hardship and persecution. And the answer, he says, are the contents of this book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And for some of you, I, I know that this is not necessarily a new verse. For most of you, you've probably heard this verse many times in the past. And really what this verse is, is the clearest description from the Bible about itself. If you're a big reader, you might uh, know that you know, hardcover books often have that dusk dust jacket on them, and you can flip kind of to the inside flap and read all about the book that you're about to, uh, to, you're about to read and discover. And I, I think if the Bible had a dust jacket on it, that inside flap might have 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 listed on it. It is this description about what this book is about. But this book isn't just a book like any other. In fact, even calling it a book is probably not the best description because really it's a collection of books. The Bible is actually 66 books written over 1,600 years on three different continents by 40 different authors, including shepherds and kings and farmers and priests and prophets and fishermen, a doctor and blue-collar workers. Now, you might think that with all of this diversity of time and distance and viewpoints, that would be full of errors and discrepancies and contradictions, and yet the Bible is perfect in its scope and purpose. And the reason for this perfection is because these weren't just 40 different authors working on their own accord. Paul tells us that Scripture is God-breathed. That the Bible is God revealing who He is and what He desires and just how far He would go to call us back to Him. And you can kind of look around in nature. You can look around at, at creation and get a sense that you know, somebody had to be behind this. You can see in, in a newborn baby or sunsets, or the great expanses and reaches of space, and think, you know, there had to be some kind of intelligent design behind this. You might conclude that it couldn't just be random. There must be a God behind it. But it's only in the Bible that we learn just who that Creator is. It's in here that God specifically reveals Himself as more than just a, a mad deity, a, a crazy scientist who created us as an experience, experiment, but rather created us as children. Dearly loved by a triune God. God breathed is this act of the Holy Spirit breathing the truth and the character and the heart of God in these pages through the pens of people under his guidance. And it's kind of remarkable to me that this perfect God would choose imperfect people to create the perfect story of his perfect love. And it's because of this inspiration the Bible has reliably stood the test of time. Let me just compare these words to some other ancient works. And, and the, we see the Bible can handle the scrutiny. We think of uh, Plato's Republic, an ancient work, and there are seven copies that we have, the earliest of which being 1,300 years after, which, after Plato originally wrote it. We have ten copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, the earliest of which being 1,000 years after it was originally written. We have 643 copies of Homer's The Iliad, the earliest of which being 2,400 years after 
it was originally written. But when it comes to the New Testament, we have 25,000 copies of the New Testament, the earliest of which being just a century later after it was originally written. And the kicker behind all of this is that of those 25,000 copies of the New Testament, all of them are consistent with the New Testament that you hold in your hand today. But Paul doesn't want us to just be informed about what the Bible is. A bunch of facts and figures aren't necessarily the greatest weapons that we have for the problems that we face. And so instead he really writes to remind us of what the Bible is for. He says the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, this is the answer to the super big problems. Now I know this is not news uh, to many of you. Some of you have been reading the Bible maybe longer than I've been alive. But this wasn't really news to Timothy either. Timothy was uh, what my former professor, uh, Matt Proctor at Ozark, would say. He was a, a Buick, a brought-up-in-church kid. Uh, Timothy had been around the Scriptures his entire life. This was not new news to him, just as it might not be new news to you. But just because it's not new doesn't mean it's not important. Paul says in verse 14, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And just as a quick aside, I I wish I had planned it this way, but I think it's remarkable that God aligned this passage with the day that we recognize newborns in our church, babies born in this last year. Talking about how Timothy had known these scriptures from infancy and how important it is that these babies are here today and they're growing up, learning his word, being in his church and how amazing that is and how prepared they'll be to, to know this word and to use it well. Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned. Almost as if he's saying, you know, don't forget the truth that God has given you. And more importantly, don't forget the power that you have at your disposal. Many would call this book irrelevant or or out of date or behind the times, but we are told that it is useful. He says it is useful for teaching. In these pages are, are statements of doctrine, things that we believe about God, how God has designed us to live. Some of you might remember uh, several years ago, my uh, nephew Kyle lived with us for a year, and one of my favorite Christmas memories is when he was really little. Uh, He got some toy, I don't even remember what what it was, but uh, his little sister was also very interested in it. And you know on Christmas Day especially that, you know, your toys are your toys, okay? You want to be the first one to experience them. And so as Kyle was trying to explain to her, this is not for you, he says to me sitting nearby, give me the constructions with his hand just like this. And I handed it to him, and he says, look, see, Avery, it says, not for three-year-olds. I'm like, well, not exactly. And I I don't think that's exactly how God puts it, but these words are uh, our constructions. They tell us how we have been designed to live, that God, as our creator, as our constructor, isn't being oppressive in his instructions. He isn't trying to limit our fun or our joy or, or make us miserable. Rather, he's telling us the best way we have been made to live and work best. We see also that the Bible is useful for rebuking and correcting. Now, I, more than anyone, maybe, don't like to be told when I'm wrong. And I'm guessing that you probably don't like it either. But the Bible exposes our weak points so that we are made aware uh, that we can't do life, at least not life to its fullest, without God. 
And even in these small moments, God is able graciously to, to rebuke us and to show us a better way. I think of just yesterday, I was doing a, the Upward Devotion at halftime uh, here at the church, and, and they always like to have an object listen, lesson with that. And so I, I had a bucket that was about half full of water, and you know if you spin a bucket fast enough over your head, the water is not going to pour out. And I use that as an opportunity to say, you know, just like I trusted gravity and I trusted this bucket to keep all of the water in, we can trust God because sometimes life is like that bucket. Sometimes it seems like it's spinning out of control. Or sometimes it it seems like you just don't have a grasp on what's going on, but yet we can trust God in the midst of that. And then later as I reflected on that, I realized how much I needed to teach myself that lesson. Especially in the season of life when when things seem out of control for us and and it's a time of transition, not just for me, but for the church. Uh, How we need to trust God in the midst of that. God is able to graciously rebuke me and show me where I've been missing on the truth of his word and correct me in that. We see lastly that the Bible is useful uh, for training. Now I have to admit, I, uh, I made a mistake this week. I know you don't think I make those, being the preacher and all. You probably think I'm, I'm perfect. But uh, I, I made a mistake this week, and I challenged our church secretary, Lisa, uh, to a workout competition as measured on our watches. And I say this is a mistake because both of us are extremely competitive, uh, but Lisa probably more so. If, you've ever, if you're familiar with the show Friends, we call her Monica around the office because she cannot lose. It's a compulsion with her. And, but I told her, you know, I, I might not win, but I'm going to make you work for it. And so I went to the gym every day. You know, I worked out, I lifted weights, and I even did the treadmill, the, like the human version of the hamster wheel. I was on that thing, squeaking away. And it's not important who won. Uh, it wasn't me. Uh, but, but I say this because, you know, I was so sore over the next four days. You know, I was making old man noises every time I moved, getting out of my chair, ah put on my jacket, oh, you know, it's just because I had trained and I had worked and I had lifted and done all of these things. And I say to say that training isn't easy. As we are trained by these pages, it, it stretches us and it challenges us and it might even pain us a little. But in being trained in the Word of God, we become, we become stronger in the work He has called us to do. But as I reflect on all of these characteristics of the Bible. It's inspired nature, it's reliability, it's longevity, it's usefulness. I come to realize that all of these characteristics are true because of the nature of what the Bible really is. The Bible isn't a history book, yet it is historical. The Bible is not a a science book, yet it is scientific. The Bible isn't a fact book, yet it is factual. No, really the Bible is in reality a love letter. Now, it's not the kind of mushy-gushy, overly sentimental type of love letter that you would get from your significant other on Valentine's Day. But the Bible is a letter from God through human authors describing all of the ways in which he loved us, even when we were unlovely. The Bible isn't about facts and figures and dates and manuscripts as much as it is about a man. A man who wasn't just inspired by God, but was truly God. These pages are about a person. In John chapter 1, we are told, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was Jesus. 
pre-existent, eternal. He was there as a part of a triune God. And yet he, as the Word, as everything this Word embodies, became man, put flesh upon him, became fully God and fully man, and walked among us. He gave up everything to love us and pursue us, even to death. And this is his story. But yet it is, imposs- but yet it is possible to read this entire thing cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and walk away unchanged. Because until you open your heart and your soul and your life up to the one whom this book is about, it's just a leather-bound book with a lot of shiny pages. The only way this book will change our lives is if we take to heart the one whom it is about. And so my encouragement to you this week is simple, and it's simply don't miss Jesus. Don't miss his teachings, his rebukes, his corrections, his trainings, because if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. One of my favorite Bibles is actually a kid's Bible that Chandler has, and it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the tagline of this Bible is, every story whispers his name. And that's so true of what this word is. From the beginning to the end of all of these stories, we see Jesus in the background of each of them as it orchestrates and plays out this perfect plan for why he needed to to come and when he came and what he did when he came and the ways that he loved us up until dying for us and being raised to new life so that we might live in him as well. So I simply want to encourage you as you read his word, Some of you maybe began the the beginning of the year with a chronological Bible plan and you're probably like in Leviticus or Job right now and things are really hard and it's challenging you and stretching you and I want to encourage you, even in those difficult passages, to look for Jesus. Not to miss him because if you miss him, you miss out. You miss out on the life that he has planned for you both now and eternally. This morning as we come to our invitation, I, I want to offer that same statement, don't miss Jesus. And maybe this is a time that you've never accepted Jesus into your life before, and I want to encourage you, if you've not, to do so today. For others of you that have already made him Lord of your life, it still is a challenge to live for him, I know. So I want to encourage you as you go through your week, into your neighborhoods, your workplaces, your homes, not to miss out on the opportunities that you have to see Jesus and to be Jesus for other people. If you'd like to make a decision this morning, I'll be up front. Our elders will be in the back. Our response team is going to come forward. And we just want to encourage you in how to find Jesus. Church, let us not miss Jesus, but rather let us center our lives around him to do the work that he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning thankful for your word. I know that often we, we think of the Bible as, as something that we have to read out of duty or, or out of obligation, but how blessed we are to have you revealing yourself to us, to have you tell us who you are and how much you loved us and what you're about and just what you did to save us. God, we pray that as we read these words that we would see Jesus all throughout and the usefulness of teaching and rebuking and correcting and training, that we would see Jesus in all of this, showing us who he is and how he loves us and how he encourages us to love others as he would love them. God, I pray that you would 
use us in a way that leads other people closer to the truth of who you are. That we might know this book so well uh, that we would see you in every passage and be able to communicate it to those who are far from you, who are lost in this world. God, we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his powerful and holy name we pray. Amen.